You are listening to From the Trinity Pulpit, a podcast of Taproot Faith. This is Matt Joyner, and I am the host of Taproot Faith and the pastor of Trinity Reformed Episcopal Church in Mason, Ohio. If you're looking for a liturgical, biblical, gospel-centered, Christ-loving church and live in or are visiting the Cincinnati area, feel free to join us any Lord's Day. We would love to have you. And now, here's the sermon for this past Sunday. you to take your seat. And while you're doing so, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, our gospel reading from this morning, beginning in verse 13. We'll take a look at this. You may have noticed that we transferred our celebration of the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul, or more properly, the Feast of St. Peter, from Wednesday, even though we had evening prayer anyway, to this morning. And I think that's a good thing. Of course, I ran it by Bishop first uh, to do that. But I wanted to make a specific point by doing so. We wanted to look at this very, very pivotal and much argued about, much contested passage of Scripture. that centers around Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. And we'll look at it first, we'll lay it out as we always do, and then there's a particular part of it that I want to really hone in on. We're told in verse 13, now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, stop. Caesarea Philippi, the location of this is incredibly important. The backdrop of this is incredibly important. We know that Jesus' primary method of teaching was through parables. He often gave object lessons. Whether If it wasn't a parable, it was something to the effect of, who has a coin? Whose image is on this? He, would very, he was very apt to show people through imagery, whether verbal imagery in terms of a story, because as I mentioned yesterday in a sermon down at the church in Florence, that we are people of story. We are people who latch on to story. That's why stories are so huge to us. And we as Christians need to latch on to telling good stories again. But in any case, he used stories and object lessons. Jesus was not above using props. I'm not going to use props in sermons, I promise. But Jesus was not above that. And this was an object lesson and a prop that he could not carry around with him. He wanted to show them something. And so he took them to the district of Caesarea Philippi. From Jerusalem by foot, this is a three-day walk north. Caesarea Philippi was up in the far north of Israel. Now it is on the border of Lebanon. And it was in the territory that was predominantly pagan Gentiles. And Caesarea Philippi was famous for a particular piety around a specific deity. How many of you have heard of the god in Greek mythology and in Roman mythology, the Greek god Pan? You guys know him whether you think you do or not. 
He's a little short guy that's half man, half goat that walks around with pipes playing. The, what are those pipes called? Pan pipes, right? The god Pan. And in Caesarea Philippi, there was this great stone that was really one of the foothills of Mount Horeb. Or of the mountains in northern Israel, excuse me. It was one of the foothills. It was this great hill, and it was known as the Rock. The Rock. And in front of it, there was a cave and a temple. And there was a great pool in one of those caves in which people would throw living sacrifices into that pool. And that pool was one of the headwaters of the Jordan River. And there was an opening underneath of it, and if blood came out, it meant that Pan had not accepted your sacrifice. He did not want an offering of blood. But people would offer living sacrifices into those openings. But here's what's even more interesting. This place is called the Rock. It's a temple. Sacrifices are being offered to a god in this place. But even more interesting is that in the ancient world, especially in the Greek mind, caves or very deep caves, the entrances to those caves were called the gates of Hades. They were considered entrances into the netherworld. They were considered entrances into death, into Hades. And Jesus takes his disciples from the heart of pure Judaism, and he takes them up on this long walk to Caesarea Philippi, the seat of pan worship, where where sacrifices were offered to this God. And he takes them there, And while there, he says to them, who do people say that I am? Seems like a strange way to begin a conversation after you've just traveled three days. But he comes and he, presumably, you can see him sitting down with the the temple and this great foothill, this great rock. And saying, who do people say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They confess to him that there's a lot of confusion among the people about who he is. Some think that you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Others that you are Elijah, who has come back to us because Elijah didn't die. He was taken off into heaven by the Lord. Or Jeremiah, or some other prophet. But then he says to them, who do you say that I am? Who do you, my disciples, who do you say that I am? And I submit to you this morning, brothers and sisters, this is the most important question that you or I will ever answer. And our eternal destiny rides on how you answer it. And how you live your life according to how you answer it. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Ding, 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 right answer. You have won the car. You have found what's behind door number three. You win. That's the right answer. Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. 
Your teacher didn't teach you this. Your dad didn't teach you this. Your instructor at Torah school didn't teach you this. My father in heaven revealed this to you. He has shown it to you. My father revealed it. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Where was he? They were in Caesarea Philippi, the main monument of which was the rock. And he says to Simon, you are Peter, Petros, Sipha, Kepha, the rock. And on this rock I will build my church. On his profession, on this profession of faith, which Peter made, he will build his church. He will build his church upon that confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And the gates of hell or the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Where were they? In front of a cave called the gates of hell. Notice one thing here that I find really interesting. Many people misinterpret that phrase, the gates of hell shall not prevail, or the gates of Hades is more properly the translation. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. People think that the gates of Hades mean that we're always being attacked from the outside and that the church is going to withstand the attack. Well, the last time I checked, gates were not offensive weapons. I've never seen a movie... I I missed the part in Braveheart where they decided they were going to war and they tore the gates off the cities and went to fight with them. I missed that part. Gates are not offensive weapons. Gates are defensive fortifications. And if the gates of Hades will not prevail or withstand more properly the church, what does that mean? Who's on the offensive here? We are. We are. We are on the offensive. We are invading hell's territory. Why? Because we got people in there. We got people in there. And we're going after them. We have been commissioned by our king to go after them. The gates of hell will not withstand the church's onslaught against it. The church, under the banner of our king, will throw down... The, the banners of the devil. And we will go in and we will get our people. That's what it means for the gates of hell not to prevail against the church. That's what it means. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He speaks these words to Peter here, but he speaks them to all of the disciples in John's gospel. A commission given to them, which then is passed on to the church to be the guardian of the kingdom. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ, which of course no longer applied after his resurrection. Now, we've laid out the passage. Now, what's the part I want to look at? Verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. That's the phrase I want to look at. I will build my church. So many of us, especially in American Christendom, American Christianity, believe that we 
are going to build the church. We are going to build the church. And we will, we will subject the church to every gimmick under the sun, every fad under the sun, every false teaching imaginable in order to get people's behinds in the pews. We will use an attractional model. We will go door to door, as many mega churches have done, and ask unbelievers, what could we do to bring you in? But that's the thing. Those models depend on an an idea that we build the church. But Christ tells Peter very clearly, I will build my church. I will build my church. So let's start there. I, Christ, I will build. Christ builds his church. It is he who lays the foundation. It is he who gives grace to the the apostles to lay the foundations and the pillars. He gives grace to to those who are faithful to continue to build upon that structure through the course of time. I will build my church. And he is still building his church. He will continue to build his church until he comes again. He will build. I will build my church. He is the chief architect. He is the only architect. He is the builder. He is the bricklayer. He is the builder. But then notice the intimacy of the language here. I will build my church. I will build my church. So many times, people will get overly attached to their church. Now, don't get me wrong. I want you to be attached to Trinity. Be attached. Okay? Have an affinity. But there are times when people can make their local congregations and the way things are done in their local congregations, they can reach beyond affinity into idolatry. And it becomes... My church. You'll hear pastors sometimes talk about this. My congregation. I've caught myself many times referring to this as my pulpit. It is mine. (laughs) No. But we get too attached. And we forget that it's not my church. It's his church. It belongs to him. And I am called to be a good steward of it. I am called to be a good steward of that which he has given. And something that's incredible about this. I think there's a beautiful analogy here. Or a disturbing analogy depending on your perspective. In Ephesians, when Paul is giving instructions for how married couples are supposed to interact with one another. And we have that uncomfortable phrase that we don't like to talk about anymore when he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How does he end that verse? And gave himself for her. Christ gave himself for his bride. He gave himself for his church. And it's as though Christ gave himself for his bride and then went on a journey And said, I'm leaving the care of this beautiful bride with you. But as time goes on, 
We look at this beautiful bride in her pristine white dress, her pristine white gown, and we think to ourselves, you know, I think she's a little too plain. You know, she's a little old-fashioned. We should update her. And they change her clothes. They change her hairstyle. They change her face. They alter her. And when the Lord, when the king returns, he finds a bride he can't recognize. He finds a bride different than the one he left us in charge of. Not in charge of, but to care for. That's the stewardship we've been given. We haven't been given the right to build anything or change anything. We are stewards who care for the deposit that the Lord has given us. He has given us a tremendous responsibility. That's a word we don't like. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to submit to you that if you're a Christian, you need to stop talking about your rights right now. As Christian people, we don't have rights. We have responsibilities. And the rights that we do have are given to us by our sovereign king. They're invaluable. We shouldn't have to talk about them. We shouldn't have to parade them around. But what we should talk about and remind each other of is our responsibilities before God. To tend what he has given. To nurture it. To continue to beautify it as he has given it to us. Not as we think it might be to attract other people. We are called to be faithful. We are called to recognize that Christ builds his church. And the means by which he has continued to build his church through the centuries is through the clear proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through faithfully worshiping him. Through building up each other in the faith once delivered to the saints. And taking that into the world and changing the culture in which we live around us. That's how we build the church, and it's how we change the world. It's how 12 guys change the world. Anybody want to think about statistics on the possibility of that happening apart from God building the church? 12 guys don't change the world, especially not 12 mostly illiterate fishermen and a tax collector and a zealot. Christ builds his church. The church for which the people gather, in which the people gather, who have clung to his cross upon which he died for their sins. And it is in this church that we receive the nourishment of the preached word and the sacraments which nourish us for our journey. That we may live our life in Christ to the fullest. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as always, we come before you thanking you for the gift of your word. We thank you. We thank you, Lord Christ, that you called a man to yourself like the Apostle St. Peter. This wonderful, bullheaded man whom you set before your apostles as an example. And who proclaimed first that glorious truth that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God.
And we pray that as you told him, that you would remind us that you are building your church. And that we would be encouraged by the reality that the gates of Hades will never prevail. That we trust in you and we fully believe in your great and ultimate victory over Satan, sin, and death. We offer up praise and adoration to you, O Lord, in the name of Christ our Savior. 